Welcome to Book Sandwiched In. Today we welcome Dr. Matthew Harris, Assistant Professor in the University of Tennessee Department of Economics and a Research Assistant Professor in the Boyd Center for Business and Economic Research. Dr. Harris is the inaugural recipient of the Michael Stahl Pemba Faculty Research Fellowship. Although Dr. Harris is primarily a health and labor economist, his work on police militarization was featured by the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and National Public Radio. Dr. Harris serves on the Economic Advisory Council for the Tennessee Department of Health. Dr. Harris will be discussing a fine mess, a global quest for a simpler, fairer, and more efficient tax system by T.R. Reed. All right, so uh, for those of you I haven't formally met, I'm Matt. So I work in the economics department at UT. I'm also in the Boyd Center for Business and Economic Research. And the Boyd Center does policy work for the state government. We do policy work for the national government at times and for private industry at times on issues that are you know, germane to economics. Um, any opinions that I express today are solely mine and not those of the Boyd Center. Um, I also have um, colleagues in the Boyd Center who were literally flown into war zones to write, help write federal taxation. Um, I have a few colleagues who are tax and public finance economists. I'm a labor and health economist, so that means that from an economics, tax, institutional knowledge standpoint, I'm probably the worst person in the Boyd Center to talk to you guys about this particular book. Um, although one of my senior colleagues in a court opinion, some of his work on taxation was, was cited in the, in the judge opinion as being a real yawn. Um, so maybe I'm not the worst person to talk to you guys about taxes overall. Um, I, I like this book a lot. Taxes can be profoundly boring, and I kind of procrastinated reading this book because taxes can be profoundly boring. But this is actually really educational, anecdotal, accessible, and fun. And economically, a lot of it's reasonable. Now, there's a few occasions where the author sort of puts two and two together and gets six, but those are fairly uncommon. And at times, the author tells you what to think a little bit more than I wish he did. It, part of that is because there's a division going on in a lot of our discourse right now, and taxes are one of the issues along which we're really divided. And I think there's a lot of really powerful knowledge in this book about what taxes are supposed to do and what they're good at doing and what they're not good at doing. That at, at times I could see how some of the author's comments would, would make some people who I think would, would really benefit from the knowledge of what taxes do bristle up a bit. Uh, so I wish the tone was a bit more neutral. Um, and as far as tax hating goes, I get it. You know, disliking taxes was one of the main reasons that our country was founded. You know, but, but with that said, and, and I don't say this often, everybody should read this book just to get a better understanding of why we have taxation, what taxes are, and what they do. A surprising number of people who I engage with on economic things don't, I feel, have a good grasp of what taxes are supposed to do. And without that sense of what is the objective of taxation, why do we do what we do, uh, it's hard to differentiate good taxes from bad taxes, let alone stupid taxes, and forget about talking about best practices for taxation. And particularly as an, as an economist, the things that I hear that sometimes leave me speechless are things like, government is bad, private institutions and the private industry is just more efficient. And 
I'll tell you what, we should just turn all this over to the private sector. And a lot of that comes from the idea that's mistaken, that government and the private industry are substitutes for one another. And that, in essence, the, the public sector is some sort of inferior substitute for the private sector, favored only by some fools for God knows why. So my usual response when I hear these kinds of things is, you know, can you cancel your next appointment? And what are you doing for lunch? Because we should probably talk. Um, so from an economics perspective, the market and the government are not substitutes. They're complements. And they exist to strengthen each other when they're done well. And beyond that, the market and the government just serve two very different objectives in our society. In the market, firms seek to maximize profit. If you want to make something profitable, turn it over to the market. For market forces and from firms maximizing profits and from consumers making choices based upon what makes them happiest subject to their, their constraints, a price will emerge. That price will determine, amongst other things, who does and does not get a good. And the price will also determine how much of a good is produced. So does the market produce the right amount of a good? It depends. Market is good. I like the market. But to be a perfect allocation mechanism, the market requires an infinite number of buyers and sellers. It requires perfect information about the market to both buyers and the sellers. It requires firms to have free entry and exit. Firms can go or leave as they please. The product has to be homogeneous. It's got to be the same amongst all these infinite buyers and sellers. And this is a big one, that all of the costs of that good are borne by the buyers and sellers of that good. There are no externalities. And so if we consider things like roads, that if we live on islands and I build a bridge to other islands, you, you inhabitants of other islands are going to benefit from that. That's an externality. Uh, that means that my actions have a positive effect on others. And I feel this is something that our profession does a little bit of a disservice of when we teach principles of economics. A lot of people who go to college will take one course during their career, and that's Econ 101. And a lot of Econ 101 really promotes market, market, yay, market, and sort of briefly mentions there may be cases where the market's not perfect, and then leaves it at that. But in reality, the set of conditions that have to exist, as we just detailed above, the perfect information, infinite buyers and sellers, firms can go as they please, the things that have to be true for the market to perfectly function and there to be no room for improvement are massive. And so will the market produce an efficient amount of something? Probably, but only those restrictive conditions. Whether government regulation or intervention of any sort will improve something is a different story. But at least if those imperfections exist, then there is room for the government to be there. Now, the government objective is quite different. The objective of the government is to provide public good, to provide goods and services for everybody. Now, a public good has a very specific definition. Specifically, it's supposed to be um, non-rival, meaning that my usage doesn't affect you and your usage doesn't affect me, and vice versa. It's also a public good is non-excludable. It means that you can't be excluded from using that good. So the classic examples of this include uh, defense, floodworks, streetlights, lighthouses, and PBS. And if these goods are valued, non-rival and non-excludable, they should be provided publicly, period. 
Otherwise, they'll drown in the free rider problem. It's a slam dunk case. But there's also several goods and services that are not necessarily non-rival or non-excludable. And in many cases, they're a lot more like private goods, where the government produces them, because otherwise, the market will produce a really inefficient amount of that good. And the, the presence of these massive externalities implies that the mechanisms of profit-maximizing behavior in the market will lead the market to underproduce. So things like education. Education is both rival and excludable. But if we only had private education, can you imagine living in a world where 40% of the population had no education whatsoever? Right? The same thing is true with health. We have a lot of conversations about whether healthcare is a public good or a private good and how should we be treated. But one of the things about healthcare is the public provision of healthcare means that more people get to participate in the labor force. This is, and if you look at things like Medicaid, which has been a hot topic for a number of years, the single biggest line item in Medicaid is formal care for older Americans. And that public provision of formal care for older Americans means that more working age individuals are able to fully engage in the labor force instead of being subtracted in the labor force purely for caregiving. Um, things like roads. Anybody who's ever been stuck in traffic will tell you that roads are a bit of a rival good. And if you've ever been on a toll road, you know they're an excludable good. But yet the externalities, if you build roads for one, everybody benefits. And so it just makes sense for the government to do that. And in some cases, the market just leads to massive failures, in which case the government needs to be involved. So this is a, a joyous story from page 29 that Actually, it's not a joyous story. It's a pathologically miserable story. Um, but it's really illustrative about how sometimes markets fail. So the fire department, for example, was not always a government function. In the first century BC, the richest man in Rome was an entrepreneur named Marcus Linicius Crassus, a figure so grandiose and so enamored of ostentatious display that his name became an English adjective. The Crass, Mr. Crassus, had business interests ranging from silver mines to the slave trade, but perhaps his most lucrative operation was his private fire department, the biggest of several commercial fire firefighting firms in Rome. When a house caught fire, his chariot carrying a big water tank would clatter through the stone streets. At the site, Crassus would start negotiating with the frantic homeowner to set a price for his services, while the hapless customer watched the flames spread. A common result was that Crassus acquired the property, with the former owner obligated to pay him rent for life. The homeowners of Rome began clamoring for a public fire department to free themselves from capitalists like Crassus. And so through this, he ends up being one of the biggest real estate magnates in Rome. Eventually, he ends up being sent to war, where he's taken prisoner, and they pour molten gold down his throat to satiate his, his lust for wealth. And then in the aftermath of all that, Rome ends up getting a public fire department. So even though something like a fire department, which can be a private good, you know, there's stories from out from where, where we live, where we, I, live out, I live out in the county, and we have Rural Metro, and we subscribe to Rural Metro. Uh, and I've seen this, so you know, to turn the volume down on the recording for a second, or I haven't seen this, I've heard the stories that if you're on fire and you're not a Rural Metro subscriber, they'll make sure the customers nearby, their houses are, are, are wet, so they don't go up and they'll let yours go. Um, so in, in, in that way, firefighting absolutely can be a, a private good, but most people would tell you we're better off when firefighting is provided as a public good. So in the presence of things like externalities or correcting for market failures, there's reasons that you want the government to provide some goods and services. So one of the things I hear is, well, why should my taxes be used for things that I don't like? And my answer to that is, it's called democracy, buddy. We put money in a pot, and we do what the median voter wants. And sometimes that's good news, sometimes that's bad news. I had a friend of mine who despised PBS. 
and hated that $1.48 of his taxes every year was expropriated from him to pay for PBS, which he found quite distasteful. And I said, okay, so here's the thing about public goods, is you don't necessarily realize it until they're gone. Now, personally, I don't watch a lot of PBS. My wife likes to watch shows about people murdering people, and so we usually watch that. Um, <laughs> but I am aware that there are some programs on PBS, like my kids do watch Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. And if you've never seen Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, it is a deeply annoying program. <laughs> but it is extraordinarily effective at behavior modification. And so they will have lessons like, use your words. I have seen Daniel Tiber's Neighborhood literally once, but I still know to tell my kids, the young ones, when they're bent out of shape, use your words, use your words. It is a remarkable tool for behavior modification. And when you think about all the times that we're in public, and we're surrounded by other people's kids, and those kids are not being obnoxious turkeys, and we don't realize it, if you're willing to pay 75 cents to avoid somebody else's kid's tantrum, and you have been spared two of those tantrums over the course of a year without your knowledge due to Daniel Tiger's neighborhood, your expropriated monies to pay for PBS have already paid for themselves, and then some by a margin of two cents, quietly in the background. You were better off for it. The person said, well, if, um, if PBS is so great, then why doesn't the market produce it? And, the market may not produce meritorious goods. PBS produces things that are educational. Most people think educational is good. The market produces for kids strange cartoons about ninjas beating the tar out of people. If we use the market as a mirror of merit, we may get that the Kardashians, methamphetamine, awful pornography, and Nickelback are meritorious goods. So the market doesn't, just because the market produces something doesn't mean it's good. And just because the market doesn't produce enough of something doesn't mean it's bad. The market and the public serve different objectives. So, but the sneaky thing about public goods is we all benefit from them without realizing that we're reaping those benefits. So hopefully I have you somewhat sympathetic to the notion of public goods. Which brings us to the thesis statement for the book for what taxes do. Is taxes provide a means to pay for the public provision of good. If you want a better military, you need taxes. If you want our servicemen and women to have safe drinking water and for our veterans to have adequate health care or good health care, taxes. If you recognize that not everybody needs to go to college and maybe high schools could really benefit from good shop and tech courses to prepare today's kids for tomorrow's workforce, that's going to be expensive to do and we're going to need taxes to do it. If you want roads that don't look like a combat zone, taxes. If you want to live in a safe society with good law enforcement and secure property rights, it takes taxes to do that. Some people always come back to this notion of, of, of fraud, waste, and abuse, and welfare. But we actually spend a very, very small piece of the budget on social assistance outside of health care. And there are problems in Medicare and Medicaid. They are expensive. But what these programs do is they're responsible for treating the two most expensive groups in the population, older Americans and disabled Americans. And conditional on the populations that Medicare and Medicare treat, they're actually pretty cost effective. So I'm ideologically sympathetic to cutting fraud, waste, and abuse, and I do think it's worth doing. But reducing fraud, waste, and abuse even to zero isn't enough to build our future with the current tax structure. So what's the goal with taxes? Taxes provide the money to provide a public good that's foundational to society and hopefully create minimal distortion. That should be it. That's all they need to do. Taxes are not a very effective means to stimulate the economy. 
Tax cuts, particularly for pass-through entities, are off-cited as a means to encourage entrepreneurship, but my colleagues, and recently me, have found no evidence that this holds any water. It sounds appealing in theory, but we've had pretty good on data on tax changes in a number of jurisdictions and cross-state and cross-country comparisons. Tax cuts do not magically compound into windfalls. They just don't. So if we're going to tax solely on the basis of paying for public good, what are the desirable attributes? Well, one is you want taxes to minimize distortions. You don't want people doing things just to avoid taxes, because that means taxes are pushing people off of their optimal path. What would they otherwise be doing? And so if you have taxes that are encouraging firms to substitute capital for labor or vice versa, you might want to rethink that. Those firms are not performing as well as they could because they're responding to these, these tax pressures. Whatever firms would have done in the absence of taxes, you still want them doing that. You just want to make sure you're bringing in enough revenue to pay for your public good. So you want to minimize the distortions while finding ways to pay for that. And that really helps if your tax is relatively unavoidable or at least minimizes the incentives to avoid it. And you want taxation to be somewhat fair. Now, that last one, that fair business, is a really sticky wicket. The author in this book appeals to the New Testament a lot. And in making an economic argument, that's not what I would have done. But in economics, what's fair sort of depends on your preferences and how you feel about your consumption and how you feel about other people's income. But the idea is this, is that people's utility or their benefit from their last dollar of income, the more proximate that is, the more approximately fair it is. Now that last statement is open to some ambiguity and debate, clearly. But the author says that economists agree economists agree, with, with air quotes, since this is an audio recording, um, that the tax code should have the following three features. One, it should have a broad base. Right? Um, two, it should have a low rate. Now, broad base means that there's not a lot of stuff left out, that it's pretty all-encompassing. If there's money in the pot, it's on the table in the tax base. Two, a relatively low rate. And then three, somewhat progressive. And the author then lays down a fairly withering series of critiques about where we are now relative to where we used to be in 86, let alone could or should be. Well, some basic facts about economists. One, our favorite thing to do is embarrass other economists. <laughs> Two, our second favorite thing to do is to kick conventional wisdom in the teeth. Three, most of us are hard funded by state budgets. So what does that mean? That means, one, that if our profession in general, we feel, is, if we see, is, is leaning towards a bias some way, then correcting that bias is we enjoy it, our profession respects it, and our profession values it. As we're the gatekeepers of causal inference as the result of policy, we take that notion of sticking to what is and not pining on about what should be quite seriously. The second thing is we love kicking conventional wisdom in the teeth. And so even if it's not ideologically bound, if we catch our profession holding false ideas and we can show evidence to the contrary, that's a ticket to a great publication and invite invitations to speak at, at wonderful places and prestige and all that kind of good stuff. So we like that. The third thing is we're hard funded by state budgets. And what that means is we're not beholden to groupthink. As I've heard colleagues in other disciplines complain that if your grant application doesn't confer to something, then you may be in a world of hurt. In economics, we are empowered to be able to say what we believe is true and what the evidence shows, regardless of whether or not it's popular. That's a lot of incentives lined up towards disagreement. So when there's general economic consensus, ignore it at your own peril. And so the rest of the book is an amusing but, but strong takedown of where the tax system currently is. 
The argument is in favor of moving towards a broad-based, low-rate schema that will allow us to raise the revenue we need to pay for our public good while minimizing distortions. And in a policy conversation, there's four components. One, where are we now descriptively? What is? Two, where are we now normatively? How do we feel about that? Three, where do we want to be? And four, how do we get there? Now, if we're going to make any issue with the progress at hand, because in two, three, and four, there's a lot of room for us to disagree, we had darn sure better agree on one. So one, right now, the U.S. has the fourth lowest overall tax burden of the OECD countries. For rich developed country standards, we are a low tax country. That includes income, sales, property, corporate tax, the whole shoot and match. Two, our tax system is quite complicated and full of loopholes and giveaways. Virtually all of these giveaways disproportionately favor people and entities who are at high marginal tax rates. A lot of times because those are the same people who have the resources to lobby for those preferences and because many of those giveaways are deductions rather than credits. So if you make 200 grand per year and I make 50 grand per year, uh, you're in the 40% tax bracket, I'm in the 25% tax bracket. Then the same $1,000 deduction means that you pay $400,000, excuse me, $400 in less taxes while I pay only $250 less. And that may not sound regressive, but what it means is that although you make more money than me, the government's picking up a bitter share of your expenditures. And a lot of these giveaways don't make a lot of sense. There's a tax on vehicles that guzzle gas, but there's no tax on trucks, vans, and things that are heavy vehicles that can be a bit harder on roads. So the economic rationale behind that is not very clear. The mortgage deductions, we like them, but they create distortions. Knoxville is a place of affordable housing. As Knoxvillians, we are subsidizing real estate purchases in Los Angeles. And remember, the thing about tax breaks, even though we like them, is whether they're deductions or credits, they're mathematically equivalent to the government spending money on stuff. If we would be bent out of shape at the government outright spending money to encourage people to buy electric vehicles, just saying, here, here's a grand, go buy an electric car, or more likely, here's $7,500, go buy an electric car, then we shouldn't necessarily favor that particular tax break either. So Congress could have had an extra $740 million last year for the general budget, but they gave it away just for electric cars. And all in all, the U.S. gave away more on tax breaks last year than we spent on defense or Medicare or Medicaid. If you combine it up next to the major categories, the single biggest expense that the federal government incurred was tax break. It's off-sided that we have high corporate taxes, but those are an absolute mirage, um, especially in the era of multinational corporations. Trying to enforce those laws across national lines, there are people who do it, but it's a, it's a bit of a nightmare. And there is a great story in the book that he tells about Caterpillar, that Caterpillar makes you know, absolutely fantastic heavy equipment. Uh, and they make equipment that will last forever. But because people run their heavy equipment ragged, they often need spare parts. And so one of the biggest pieces of Caterpillar's business is, is spare parts. So Cat and PwC had a conversation, and PwC says, look, if, you're, if most of your profit margin comes from spare parts, then what we can do is we can create an entity in Switzerland, and all of your business will be done from Switzerland, where there's a much lower tax rate. So Caterpillar parts are made in the U.S., they're warehoused in the U.S., they're stored in the U.S. until they're shipped to the point of destination country where they're then transferred so they can make good on the promise of getting people parts within 24 hours, but all the taxes were being paid out of Switzerland. There's similar stories about Apple, there's similar stories about every large multinational corporation where whenever corporations have the opportunity to choose where they work, 
they respond to the incentives in front of them. Corporations are just like people in some ways. They will do exactly what you incentivize them to do. Executives will respond to those incentives and they will do that accordingly. And the tricky part is that economists, we like a free market. We believe in a free market. And because we study efficiency, we're off ones involved with regulations. So you have the financiers and accountants are the ones that big firms and, and high net worth individuals hire. And the economists can only sort of trail behind and see, okay, does this look right or does this look very clever? And determine whether it should be regulated. And by the time that the regulators have sort of said, okay, we're not so sure we like this particular practice in transfer pricing or multinationals, then the innovation, the force of innovation has already driven those, those entities onto something else. We're a whole bunch of trillions in debt, and we have a leaky tax system. And income inequality in the country is getting more pronounced. Now, our tax system contributes to that income inequality by some extent, because if you look at the effective tax rate with respect to income, it's not progressive. And some of that has to do with charitable deductions, and some of that has to do with, with various specific preferences that are there. But as income inequality becomes more pronounced, taxes become more important. And the reason comes back to the market, that if you have a market where you have a few people with a lot of means and a lot of people with not a lot of means, then your profit-maximizing strategy is going to be to get the most resources that you can from the people with a lot of means and to price the others out of the market. And that means that increasing numbers of people become more reliant on public good. So that's kind of where we are. Two is how do we feel about that? And I can't speak for everybody, but if we're going to try to improve our education system, if we want a strong military, if we want better infrastructure, if we want to continue to be leaders in innovation, and even if you don't agree with any of that, uh, we do have to deal with the outstanding deficits. And if we're going to deal with the outstanding deficits, we have to raise revenue. We have to raise revenue because the AERP is an extremely powerful lobby and they're going to protect Medicaid. And going after defense is absolutely a non-starter. And there's not enough slack in the administrative functions in order to be able to true that up. So that means that overall, if you're just balancing your checkbook, the amount of taxes that you need to collect are going to need to increase at some point if we're going to pay down the deficit. And so if you do want a more effective tax system, the author contends that we need a broad base, so meaning fewer exceptions, fewer deductions. Most of those are distortionary and do as much harm or if not more than good. And lower rates. And this is important because if you just take away deductions, you're really going to piss people off. And something has to give. And also, the more you lower rates, the more that you reduce the incentives for people to be creative about the way that they do taxes. And finally, it has to be somewhat progressive. Just because flat taxes backfire, it is really, really difficult to find a way to find a single rate that works for everybody. By the time you bring the rate low enough to make your affluent happy, the rate has gone up enough to where it's unsustainable for your lower classes. It is really difficult, particularly with the, even, even in places where the distribution of income is relatively flat. Flat taxes eventually lead to massive deficits. A few caveats about the author's argument. One of the case studies, and this is worth reading if you haven't read the book, is about New Zealand and the way that New Zealand transitioned from a, a scenario more like ours, where you had nominally high rates but real low rates and lots of strange loopholes and sort of giveaways and that they had this great tax system that helped transform their economy, and that helped. But what really helped was they discovered what their comparative advantage was going to be. They discovered that they were going to be really good exporters of top-notch wine and, and organic agricultural goods. This is not made enough of a point of, is that timing is really important with tax reform. 
when things are going well, people are open to making more trade-offs in pursuit of the greater good. When they're feeling spread thin, it's harder to get people to do that. And it's called reform, not giveaway. When you have reform, you're going to have some people who are better off and some people who are worse off. But if you have people that are generally speaking feeling good about things, it's easier to bargain. Two is the author comes down heavily in favor of a value-added tax, which is used in most of the world. Now, the value-added tax is a tax that is a sales tax, but a sales tax that's accrued and paid at every step of the supply chain. So when you go from raw lumber or raw timber to lumber, there's a tax paid on the value-add. When you go from lumber to unfinished furniture, there's a tax paid on the value-add. When you go from unfinished furniture to finished furniture out there at Brown Squirrel, you know, there's a tax paid on that. And so it's favorable in some ways to corporate income tax because there's the fewer ways for creativity and innovation to get around paying that tax. And so if the goal is to collect revenue, a VAT has some appealing features, but that 20% tax is, is what VAT is in a lot of ways, is still end up being paid by the end consumer. And that means it's really regressive. And sales tax is one of the most regressive forms of taxation that we have in the U.S. So while it's good to get the corporate sector engaged without the distortionary effects of the corporate income tax and the $2 trillion that are expatriated in other countries, it would take a lot of transfers and credits to keep low-income housing whole from a 20% VAT. And politically, our country has not been big on unconditional cash transfers to low-income families. So the VAT, while well-intentioned, I'm not so sure that would work uh, as, as well here in the States as it has in other places. But other things that I would like to see that are less drastic and transformative is right now, anybody who makes $129,000 a year and somebody who makes $4 million a year pay the exact same amount into Social Security taxes, 6.2% of income up to $128,000. And to me, that's sort of nuts and regressive, that if it's a 6.2% tax for Social Security, it should be 6.2% all the way up, not capped after the first 128K. Two, if we want to have deductions for some things, fine. People are going to lobby for their special thing, no matter what it is. But a total cap on deduction is going to help stop the drain from the inexorable pursuit of special interests. And one of the things that the author points out is that the tax code in 86 was a lot simpler than it is now. Rates were lower, the base was broader, there were fewer exceptions. But over time, more exceptions found their way in. Nominal rates had to go up to adjust for that, to try to keep revenue whole. And that created more incentives for both pursuit of loopholes and also for creative accounting. But that pursuit is going to happen. But if you have a total cap on deductions, then great. That's going to help stem the damage of some of that. But that deduction is going to have to be built into the rates. And the third thing is I do believe everybody should pay some taxes. Even if it's $5, even if it's $10, and that's it, and it comes back later in some kind of in-kind transfers, everybody ought to have a little bit of skin in the game. And everybody ought to know they have a little bit of skin in the game. And finally, the, the author makes a big deal that people are going to feel more sympathetic towards the IRS and towards other things, that if there's more transparency and less opacity about how exactly taxes are determined. He says that people like knowing when they're paying taxes, and I'm not so sure that's right. Um, the more convoluted a tax sheet is, the good news is, it's harder for people to duck it, at least most people. And I'm sympathetic to the notion that complying with our crazy tax system is costly, but I don't think the complexity of our tax system is what's responsible for the current state of our dialogue on taxes today. But ultimately, this is all how we get there. And conditional on our government is worth funding and public good is worth providing. And right now, we're still arguing a lot about where we are descriptively. 
are we a low tax or a high tax country, let alone how do we feel about it. And the author agrees that increasing the transparency of our tax system will make people more open to it. I'm not sure. But in the meantime, the book does a fantastic job of talking about what taxes do, what taxes do not do, providing evidence for what they do. And if we could get you know, another 200 million people to read the book, I think that that would at least sort of do a lot to have people talk about the same thing when they were talking about taxes. And then opinions, of course, are always going to be what they are, including his and including mine. So I'll stop talking and make it a discussion. Ma'am. The, the author talks in the first chapter or two of the book about the complexity of our system and how much time we spend doing the tax returns, whereas in, I believe it's the Netherlands, they do it in 15 minutes. Yep. Do you have any, any ideas on this? So the author's notion is if you broaden the base to basically make the world relatively loophole free or deduction free, and then you make the, the, the rates low enough to keep people whole that it'll streamline, save a lot of time and energy. I'm sympathetic to that. I like it. Most of the time that I spend preparing taxes is wasted, and I think most of the, you guys probably feel the same way. The reason that it is complex is because we view things like the mortgage the tax credit as necessary to get people to buy a house. But what that does is jack up home prices. It means that the fact that mortgage is tax deductible means the nominal price of houses goes up. And once you own a house, that's great. I like my mortgage tax deduction. But it also means that it in fact does make it new home ownership more difficult because it raises the nominal price of getting into that market. So if we, if we get back to what a taxes actually do, and what do they not do? I think it's, it's a pretty good case for, for streamlining that because right now that's a lot of wasted time and energy and money that all we really need to be doing is trying to figure out how much public good do we want and how do we pay for it. So, great question. Saw a piece last night about the uh, public debt has now hit 21 trillion. Mm -hmm. you know, something that Trump said he was gonna turn the other way. Uh, anyhow, the uh, interest on that is approaching the military budget's level. How do you think this is going to impact uh, future tax well, bills of one sort or another? Great question. What the economists will tell you is a good idea is not always what happens politically. Virtually every economist I know took a look at the tax cut bill that was just extended. and. I mean, we have people who look at things and say, is this a good idea? Is this going to pay for itself? And Congressional Budget Office came back with a resounding no, and it happened anyway. So when you, when you have the public debt that's big enough to have that kind of interest, one of two things has to happen. Either taxes have to come up, or you've got to stop spending on something else. And I'm hearing, I understand that there will be many iterations of a proposed budget, but one of the proposed budgets now has big cuts to Medicare and Medicaid built into it. The good news about it, if you want to call it that, is that we're not necessarily $21 trillion in debt to the rest of the world. The overwhelming majority of that debt is held, by, is held domestically. Now, that doesn't change the financial obligation. It doesn't change what has to happen for the government to be able to provide public good. And it doesn't change the fact that there's not enough slack in the administrative functions of the government to, to, to cut that without cutting something that until this point has been sort of sacrosanct or having to recognize that revenues have to increase. But yeah, we're that, the rock and the hard place are going to squeeze in very short order.
Just a quick question. You mm -hmm. referenced wanting 200 more, million more people to read this book. If you could choose a book for two or 300 million people to read, would this be the one that's accessible and useful and establishes all these concepts that you've been talking about? I think this is good. I think uh, Thinking Fast and Slow is a good book because it makes you sort of think about discount rates. Pretty much anything Dan Ariely writes I like just because it's about why people do the things that they do and sort of the things that are sort of not obvious. What nudges can you get to get people to do things that are a bit more adaptive? But as, as far as a accessible crash course on taxes, what they do and don't do, this book is really good. The tone is definitely slanted towards one end of the spectrum. And you know, my concern with that is that people who come at it from a different angle, I'm not sure this book will be as effective in reducing some of those tensions as it could be. But I do also understand the tension that's there and that you know, you gotta, you've got to have some tongue-in-cheek jabs for sort of amusement value, otherwise you don't sell as many copies. But even, even though some of his treatments and some of the opinions expressed in the book, he has his opinions. The, the overall value of the content is great in terms of, of taking people who may not have thought a whole lot about taxes beyond what they heard from other sources and sort of saying, okay, why do, why do we really do this? Why do we need this? What is, what is the value of doing that? And I wish he talked more about the public good uh, and sort of the public good that's there. And there's, um, if I could, there would be a companion piece I would recommend. It would probably be something about externalities and about how financing certain types of projects leads to greater growth and greater welfare gains than others, um, just because I don't think we emphasize that enough. Uh, what can you tell me about the extent to which nonprofit organizations support the public good? And how does the new tax bill affect that group? Great question. I don't know. One of, my, one of my colleagues who actually is a, a better public finance economist than me would probably be better suited to answer the question, at least on the tax bill. In terms of the nonprofit groups, um, there's a lot of groups under the auspices of nonprofit. Some do fund the public good, some do not fund the public good, some are shelters. There's just some really sort of galling stories in the book about private museums and, and things like that that are set up under not-for-profit shelters. I would love to know the answer to your question on to what extent do nonprofits provide public good and in what proportion are our tax shelters. That's a really interesting question. I'm sorry I don't know the answer. Do you have any update as we move to a full you know, digital economy and buying more services online and on the cloud? Do you have any update on sales tax and you know, digital tax collection? Um, like Amazon had Big issues. So. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, you know, the, the case in South Dakota recently has a lot to do with, uh, with making sales tax broadly taxable. So uh, my impression from my colleagues, and they, and you know, again, this goes back to in some cases I'm the worst person in my group who could be here talking. Um, they have more domain knowledge about the specifics, but I think sales tax in general is about to be more broadly collected for Internet sales regardless of where it's coming from. The state budgets need all the revenue that they can get, and so I think that's probably a good thing that... Um, particularly since, you know, relative to other sales taxes, relative to brick and mortar sales taxes, your online sales taxes are a bit more progressive compared to in-store sale taxes. All right. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. I appreciate you.
Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.